Welcome to Unlocking the Truth, a podcast by Precept Ministries Canada. Know God deeply and live differently by studying His Word and discovering God's truth for yourself. You are listening to a series called Jesus' Message to the Seven Churches, and it goes through Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Here is Mark Sheldrake with Episode 8, The Church of Philadelphia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unlocking the Truth podcast. My name is Mark Sheldrake. I'm the National Director of Precept Ministries here in Canada. So glad you could join us. Uh, Oh, not just from Canada, all around the world. Did you know, did you know, folks, that this is a ministry of Precept Ministries in Canada? Uh, We record and release everything right in our main offices in Brantford, sending it out to you. And I want to welcome all those who are listening outside of Canada. Thanks for sharing the podcast, tuning in. Glad you're enjoying it. We're working our way through Revelation. We're working through the seven churches, and uh, we're coming close. We're coming close to the end, folks. And I want to let you know where we're headed next. We are going to be looking at six characteristics of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to look at the whole principle of what does it mean to count the cost. Oh, it's going to be a good one. I'm sure that uh, we are going to be challenged from God's word and to see what is happening uh, around us with those who proclaim that they are disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, Also want to let you know that we're in the planning stages in the ministry. We start to plan for 2023. And if you are interested in hosting any training, live training in person with your churches, I would encourage you to reach out to training at preceptministries.ca. We would love to come to your church. Any province in Canada would be a blessing to uh, partake in and uh Looking forward to having a couple of live training events coming up in the very near future. You can check out our website, get more information there as well. And then don't forget, we have online classes as well as online training workshops that you can participate in to build your skills in inductive Bible study. Why? Because this week's episode of the podcast, we are going to be looking at the importance of God's Word yet again. How could we not? How could we not look at that again this week? All right, let me pray, and then uh, let's get going with the podcast. Father, we do thank you for all that we have seen and heard so far in our episodes. Lord, I pray that uh, even this week, as we dig into your Word again, that we would be challenged to uh, learn new things, but also challenged in our hearts to see transformation in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, uh, I'm really excited about this week. Let me let me tell you, did you know that there are seven trumpets that uh, blow in the book of Revelation? Do you think, do you think, folks, as the introduction to this week's church, do you think these are the trumpets that were blown? Oh, folks, do you know the song? Do you know the song that you're hearing right now? Does it does it rain familiar to you? Hey, 
Hey guys that are listening, have you started throwing fist pumps in the air? Are you starting to toss, turn, and and get up on those tiptoes? <laughs> yeah, me too. This is uh, this is the theme, folks. To Rocky, Rocky, and you know what? Rocky has absolutely nothing to do with the church that we're going to be looking at this week. But I just cannot help but think of the location, the location of this church. And this week, we're going to be looking at the church at Philadelphia. And, and when I hear Philadelphia, I don't automatically go to the, to the biblical city of Philadelphia. I think about Rocky. And I think about the, the American city, Philadelphia. What was, what's it called? What's the nickname for Philadelphia? It is the city of brotherly love. And we're going to look at this church today because guess what? That's where USA Philadelphia got their name is from this biblical town, this Philadelphia, also known as the city of brotherly love. Do you think they had stairs there that that you could run up to the top with a big crowd of people and start boxing in the air? Yo, I am ready to fight Apollo. I don't know. I have no idea. I've never been there. And so, but we are going to look at this church today. So, uh, fun little opening for you, but reality is this church got nothing to do with Sylvester Stallone. All right, let me just give you a, a couple of things to get us going in this week's episode. But I don't know about you, but uh, in my years of being a pastor uh, and leader in the church, a lot of the conversations that we have around church, they come down to the basics. And the basics are numbers. Why is it that as we come together as churches, and really pastors do this really well, we come together and it's like, hey, how many people you got in your congregation? As though we put together that the number of people within our churches determines how successful we are. Think about when you have gone to look at churches or pondered, say, a change in church. Have you looked at some of the mega churches and thought, wow, that would be really great to be a part of, and it has to be good because there are thousands of people that are attending this church. Uh, one thing to think about, there was a church that was doing online services out of California through the pandemic, and they increased their number of people attending services by millions, by millions by having their services online. Does that make them a successful church by basing it all on numbers? I don't think so. You know, over the last little while, what have we seen? Think about what we have seen happening in the world. It's even happened in Canada. Some of these mega church leaders, the churches that we look to as the ones being successful, have really been uh, filled with a lot of problems. We have seen mega church pastors uh, coming down and falling for sexual sin like crazy in the last little while. We have seen the likes of uh, people like Bruxy Cavey and uh, James McDonald, and just to name a few. There are others that we have seen uh, been in very high places in mega church situations that uh, sin has been brought to the forefront and they have been brought and humbled down. 
into the position where they're no longer even a part of these churches. Numbers does not do not indicate success. And so in my years of, of traveling around this country, I have visited so many churches. And I have visited churches that have had 20 people in them, and I have visited churches that have had thousands of people in them. But what I have seen is I have seen in some of these smaller churches, I have seen a group of people that are so dedicated to ensuring that God's word holds firm in their church, that the teaching and the principles of God's word are not compromised in any way, and that they are reaching out into their community to with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so this is what we're going to look at today, is that we're going to look at a church that is not the biggest of the seven churches. It's a smaller congregation of people. And this smaller congregation of people is going to see great encouragement from Jesus when he does the x-ray. When he looks at the x-ray of this church, he has nothing but good things to say about them. All right, so just as we continue our background, if you're just tuning in for the very first time and you've not gone back and listened to the other episodes, this is the this is the framework of how we put uh, each of these podcasts together for the churches. We're going to look at the historical background. We're going to look at the description of Jesus. We're going to look at any reproofs that the church might have, any encouragements or commendations that the church has, instructions, and then promises to the overkeep uh, to the overcomers. Ha, it's a good five point message. Here we go. Okay, let's look at the historical background first. All right, Philadelphia, it was a successful commercial center because of its location. Philadelphia was located in a fertile valley, and so they were very successful in their uh, sell and trade. All right, they are also known as a location that had multiple temples and religious festivals. Uh, They're known as the city of brotherly love. Now, why? All right. The reason why is that there was a man and his name was Attalus and he had a brother and his brother was the King Eumenes II. Uh, Attalus was an accomplished military commander and he was very loyal to his brother. Uh, He stuck by his brother's side no matter what, and he earned the nickname because of his dedication to his brother, uh, the nickname Philadelphus, which means the person who loves his brother. All right, so that's where we get this name, uh, the city of brotherly love. Uh, The city was prone to earthquakes, because it was close to an active volcano. In AD 17, the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake, and then it was rebuilt uh, later. Uh, The church, and this is what we're going to focus on here, the church 
was facing persecution, much like the other churches in the seven letters at this time. Okay, so we've got this church that uh, was not big in numbers. They didn't have the biggest congregation. Uh, They were in the midst of a, a location facing great persecution, And this is what Jesus is going to start this letter out. He's going to give us his description as he works his way verse by verse, and as we do as well. Uh, To the angel in the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, Boom! There's the there's the information that we we want right there. Okay, so he starts with, and he says he is holy. All right, so we want to look at this principle first because as inductive students, what are we going to do? We're going to list out all of the information that we get, and then we're going to interpret. So the first is he's holy, then he is true, and he is the one who has keys. Those are three important things that we're going to look at. And the first is holy. And that word holy means to be consecrated and set apart. And so we're going to just go to a couple of cross-references and just look at how we see Jesus as the one who is holy. And we're first going to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, The angel answered and said to to her, uh, Mary... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Even back to when, before Jesus was even born, when the angel was speaking to Mary, uh, Jesus was holy and set apart. All right, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 69. Listen to what John says uh, as he's writing his gospel. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All right, do you hear it? Peter's testimony of to who Jesus is, he says that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Let's look at one more, and it's Mark chapter 1, verse 24. All right, so we saw the angel saying that he was the Holy One. The Son of God. We saw Peter saying he is the Holy One, uh, the Son of God. And then look at this Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Uh, A man in the synagogue who, who had an unclean spirit in him cried out, verse 23. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So Jesus, when he comes and he says he is holy, we are seeing that 
not only did the angel, God's messenger, send and say to Mary, Jesus is the Holy One. The disciples said he is the Holy One. And even demons know that Jesus is holy. All right, so uh, he is consecrated. He is set apart. Uh, Also, we want to look at that Jesus is true. Okay, so he is holy and he is true. Uh, This true is a direct contrast with verse 9. Okay, so we're going to come back to verse 9 later, but let's, let's just put it on the table for us right now and see what it says. Okay, behold, I will cause the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Do you see the comparison? You have one who is true, and then you have those who lie. What Jesus is saying here is he is holy. He is set apart. He is the Holy One of God. He is the true Messiah. He is holy, and he is true, and he speaks for God. Uh, Let's look at Hosea uh, chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse 9, and listen to what the prophet says regarding this one who is true. Hosea 11, verse 9. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Throughout the whole ages of God's Word, we see that Jesus, that God Himself describes Himself as the Holy One. In the New Testament, Jesus described as the Holy One. Right in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a number of references to the principle of Jesus being holy and true. All right, so let's look at these ones. Isaiah, or sorry, uh, Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Uh, Look at uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, and it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? Did you hear it? Uh, Holy and true. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. Let's look at that verse and see the principle of holy and true. Uh, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the uh, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Uh, How about uh, Revelation chapter 16, verse 7? Uh, And I heard... The altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. 
And then the big one, the one that we we know we've we've heard this verse before when it comes to the fact that Jesus is holy and true. And that is Revelation chapter 19. And let's look at what he says. Uh, And I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So we've got the principle here uh, that Jesus, what he's saying as he's calling himself holy and true, is that he is the true Messiah. He is the one who was set apart by God. He is the Holy One of God's. And therefore, because he is holy and true, he is completely trustworthy in both his words and his actions. This is huge. This is huge in comparison to that verse 9. Those liars, those people from the synagogue of Satan who are persecuting and pressuring this church. So this becomes a great encouragement for this church. Why? Because we look at verse 8. Don't worry, we'll come back to verse 8 in a minute. But what we see is that he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have little power. Do you see how important this is? We'll look at it further. But because this church has little power, this little influence in this world, the fact of the matter is that Jesus says he is the true one. He's holy. He's trustworthy, both in word and action. And therefore, this is the one who is speaking to this church, the one holy one of God who can be trusted and counted on. Now, listen to what he says next. All right. He says, uh, not only is he holy and true, but he has the key of David. No one can close uh, what is opened and no one can shut uh, what he's, no one can open what he has closed. Okay, so <laughs> what, what, what in the world is Jesus telling us here? Well, first, let's go to a simple analogy. Okay, the simple analogy is this, and I just love this. Okay, so let's just think about keys. All right, don't, don't even think beyond the keys of David. Think about keys. Uh, Keys are so important, aren't they? When you have a key, you then have the authority to open whatever door you have that key for. All right, so let's let's just look at church for a minute. Uh, I love church, and I love the way that we administer keys within the church. (laughs) Uh, There are different levels of key for a church. We have a master key, which probably a lot of employees would have of the church. We have maybe some, uh, the, the janitorial or the cleaning team would have a master key. But then there are those other keys. There's a key for the kitchen, so that only opens the kitchen. There might be a key for the 
office and then there's multiple. You just list it out. Think about your church. I'm sure of it that even in your church, you have multiple keys to open multiple doors and then master keys. The master key is the one that we want to focus on. What does the master key do? That master key opens every single door within the church. That master key, if you carry that master key, walk around with it proudly. Why? Because you have the ability to gain access to every single place within the church. And not everybody has that master key. What Jesus is telling us here, that he has the key to David, that he is the one, the Holy One of God, the true and Holy One whose words are both trustworthy and true, he has the master key. He has the authority to determine who participates in his kingdom. Wow. Uh, He has the ability to determine who does not enter into his kingdom. And you see what he's saying here is he says, I have the key and I'm the one who opens the door. No one can close that door because they don't have the master key. And the one, I'm also the one who can close that door because I have the master key. And it doesn't matter whether you have a kitchen key or not, it's not going to open the same doors as the master. Jesus is telling us right here by the analogy of the keys, I have the authority for that who enters the kingdom of God, and I have the authority to determine who does not enter the kingdom of God. This is absolutely amazing. Let's look at the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, we're going to see uh, a direct uh, cross-reference to what we're seeing here in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. All right, let me just uh, start with verse the beginning of verse 22. It says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. <laughs> Who's he talking about? He's, he's talking about Jesus. When he opens, no one will shut it. And when he shuts it, no one will open it. All right, so uh, the key of David will be on his shoulder, and no one will open and no one will close unless he does it. Look at Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 19. So Matthew 16, verse 19, it says, um, as the context here is Jesus at Philipp- Caesarea Philippi, uh, which we visit on our Israel tours. It's absolutely an amazing place. There's a, a giant cave that is there, and many of the people believe that that giant cave uh, was the gates to hell. 
Um, even Alexander the Great went to Caesarea Philippi, and he went there to worship the fertility god in the hopes that he would get an heir to his throne. Jesus takes the disciples there, and he asks the question, who do they say that I am? Uh, this, this place was uh, well known for its idol worship, and he was looking as they were worshiping all these gods, who do they say that I am? Uh, you know, among all those gods, who am I? Uh, Peter steps up and he says, I uh, know that you are the true, the Son of God. And listen to what he says to Simon Peter. Uh, he says, uh, I also say to you, verse 18, Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Oh, who has the keys? Who has the keys to determine who enters the kingdom of God? Jesus does, according to Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 19. All right, now let's look at one more. John chapter 14, uh, verse 6. In John chapter 14, verse 6, is another verse that should reign familiar to you as soon as you hear the reference. He says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Why? I have the keys. So what he's saying here is he is saying that he is the Holy One. He is set apart by God. And what, is, what does he have? He has all authority. He has all authority. Jesus is the true Messiah who's both holy and true. His words are trustworthy. He is the only one who has the authority to determine who participates in the kingdom of God. All of this contrasts verse 9 and addresses what John writes and says, those who are fake. All right, so we're going to come out to that as we continue to build off of all of this. All right, now, in this, the next point, point number two, reproof. Guess what? No reproof. There's nothing that when Jesus looks into this church, he says, ha, there's something wrong with you. Uh, there is no reproof in this church. This is a, a fantastic. This whole letter is going to be a great encouragement to the church at Philadelphia. All right, let's look at the commendation then. On we go to the commendation. I know your deeds. Uh, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied the faith. All right, so this is something that we've seen repeated throughout the letters. I would encourage you to go back and look through the letters and see that Jesus starts these these um let these x-rays and this information with I know your deeds. Uh chapter 2 verse 2 to Ephesus, I know your deeds. Uh and also he says I know your deeds to the church at Thyatira. Uh chapter 2 verse 19, I know your deeds. All right. So all of these uh things are repeated. I know I know what's going on. I've done an x-ray. I know your deeds that you have. 
All right, now, what else does he say about this? He says, there is an open door before them. Uh, There are two interpretations of this open door. All right, first, the open door interpretation comes from that of this is an open door for ministry to you, for you to go reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we hear that terminology a lot within church. Uh, oh, we're praying for an open door for ministry. Uh, we're praying that God would, would, would open up opportunities for us to go. In the context of this letter, in the context of the Church of Philadelphia, the open door for ministry is not the likely interpretation of this passage. The likely interpretation of this connects back to the keys of David. So what Jesus is saying to them, I know your deeds. I have x-rayed into your heart. I see what you are doing. And because of what you are doing, you have direct access to the kingdom of God because you are true believers in Jesus Christ. And he prefaces that with a couple of important things. The first is he says that even in the midst of all of this persecution, you have kept my word and you have not denied his name. These are two key principles for entrance into the kingdom of God. All right, these are two key things that show us that we are overcomers and that we will one day enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, The key here, all right, is much like other churches we have looked at, this church, no matter what the persecution, is not compromising on the word of God, and they are being commended for that. All right, let's look at the next part of this, because it says, as a part of this commendation, there is still great encouragement here. This persecution that they are facing from Jewish leaders. All right, so if you look at this, though you have little power, uh, the Jewish people of this time, these were people that held power, money, position, and influence. And what they were doing was they were trying to cause the church to compromise in two ways. One, compromise to the law, but we also see this great persecution of the church from the government, that the governments were causing them to want to fall into line of Domitian, and they wanted them to fall into that Roman rule and bow to the gods and the idols that they were not to be worshiping. So there was this immense pressure from this church. And though they had little power, they had little influence, they were a small little congregation of people, they were holding fast to God's word and were not denying his name, no matter how strong, how powerful, how influential their enemies were, they were immovable. Now, before we even go any further than where we are at right now, this is the situation that we are in today. 
This is not just about, oh, think about where we've been with this COVID-19 and and the government's pressure and some looking at this pressure of, oh, well, they're forcing us to do these things and do that thing and vaccines. I'm not talking about any of that. I am talking about the world. And if you look at the world that we live in right now, the world that we live in right now is like Christians are, even in Canada, are in the middle of a vice and the little walls of the vice are closing in and the pressure, the pressure that is coming for compromise in many different areas of our faith and of God's word is there. And the pressure that is being put on us to compromise the word of God, compromise certain verses to to appease the world, to allow them to feel inclusive and a part of what's happening, to take the word of God and change definitions and change instruction, all of these things that are coming against us. We are seeing that churches, and we looked at this in a previous church, we are seeing that churches are falling to the compromise. They're falling to the pressure of the the grips closing in on them, and they're not standing firm and holding fast in the Word of God. But this small congregation, no matter what comes against them, they are not allowing the pressure for them to deny the name of Jesus or to deny the true Word of God. And that's why, do you see why Jesus starts this out? I am the holy one. I am the true one. I am the trustworthy one. That you are the one that can count on my word and my promises. Why? Because it's only me, Jesus, who opens and closes the door to the kingdom of God. It's me who determines the one that is saved and spends eternity with me. It's me who is the one who determines those who will be faced with my wrath for not bowing to me and showing all love, all allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is why I want to pick up in the podcasts after we go through these churches with what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because what we're looking at is we're looking at these churches, these seven churches, and we're going, this is so applicable for us today because this is what's happening in the churches. And you know what? I'm not sure everybody in church sitting in those pews knows what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure every single person in the pew, in the church, is holding fast to the Word of God and holding fast to Jesus' name. There are people in our churches right now who are compromising truth. Why? Because they don't want persecution. They don't want to feel uncomfortable in their life, and therefore, they're willing to compromise and move into the world's agenda instead of holding on to the agenda of Jesus Christ, which is righteousness, which is a matter of life and death. You see, it's Jesus who can look and he can close the door and say, I did not know you. It is Jesus who can open the door and say, come on in. Why? Because you held fast. Because you are trustworthy. Because you are the one who did not 
compromise my word and my name. Even in the midst of all this, this persecution that's coming, the vice is closing on them. It's, it's coming and it's, the pressure is there. We've seen other churches in the Rev- seven churches that have been compromising to this, but this church is not compromising. And it is so important for us to see what Jesus says next. Because you've done this, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. Behold, what? Who? I, Jesus will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jewish people and they are not, uh, but they are a lie, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and make them known that I have loved you. Uh, Paul, in the book of Romans, he gives uh, a sign of what a true Jew is. Uh, a true Jew is one who is circumcised of the heart, one who has had their life changed by recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one and true Holy One who was set apart. Uh, the people, the Jewish people here, what were they wanting to do? Force people back into the law. Uh, these are Jewish persecutors who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We saw this when Jesus lived. Uh, When Jesus lived, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, and they put him to death. All right, so what Jesus is saying here is that these people living the lie, these fake Jews, they will bow down at the church's feet And they will know that Jesus loves the church. Man, these persecutors, they are going to be humbled. They're going to be knocked down a number of pegs on the board. And it's very similar to what Paul says in Philippians. Paul says in Philippians that Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Everybody's going to recognize Jesus' position as holy and true, as the Messiah, as the one who has the keys to salvation. Let's look at verse 10. Uh, verse 10, it's, there, there is a promise here. All right, so there are some warnings and instructions, but there is a promise here, and this promise uh, is very specific to the church. This promise uh, is outside of the promise to the overcomers, and yet still is a promise to the overcomers. Uh, he says, Because you have kept my word, the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour uh which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. (laughs) If I could see your faces right now, if I could see what you're looking at, some of you might be going, ha ha, this verse 10, you know what that rapture. All right. Rapture. Three cheers 
for, for the rapture, right? All right, so the hour of test. Let's look at this. Let's look at this a little bit closer. Okay, so there, the idea here is to be kept from or removed from this event. So uh, because you've kept my word of perseverance, I will also remove you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. All right, so I'm not going to get into the the rapture as, you know, for you to figure out, okay, what are the all the positional views. I'm going to give you the three basic views of the rapture, and then we're going to look at what this verse seems to indicate, and then we'll move on. All right, three views of the rapture. Uh, one view of the rapture is that it comes after the tribulation or after what we call, what um, John is calling this hour of testing here. Another view is that the rapture comes in the middle of that tribulation. And then the final view of the rapture is that the rapture comes uh, before the tribulation. Uh, many people who hold a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, rapture view would use this verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, as one of those verses to give them that, that grounding to say that the rapture uh, occurs before uh, the tribulation. All right, so, but I want to look at something I think is way more important. It's way more important whether the rapture occurs when it occurs. The fact of the matter is the promise is that Jesus went to prepare a place for us and he is coming back. He's coming back for us. Okay, that's the most important thing. We spend way too much time arguing over which view of the rapture is correct, and that's why I continually say eschatology is for encouragement, not debate. What's most important here? Hey, Jesus is coming back for his believers. But I want to look at the test. I want to take a closer look at this test for a minute. All right, there are five things for us to do to look at this test, okay? First, we're going to list out these things directly from the text, okay? So because you've kept, my, kept the word of my perseverance, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. All right. There are five things right here that he tells us. One, it's future. All right. Why do we know it's future? Because it says that it is about to come. So at this point, it has not occurred yet, the hour of testing. The second thing is that it, this testing is for a definite time frame which seems to be a limited time frame, okay? The hour of testing doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be one hour uh, in length as we know it as 60 minutes, but it is a time uh, that is going to take place and in a limited time. If you want to learn more about this hour of testing, feel free to pick up one of our Revelation studies. we got four parts of them, 47 weeks in length for all four parts, and you can learn all about the rapture. You can learn all about the tribulation. Okay, so now the third thing 
This is the third thing that it's going to tell us, okay? The third thing is going to tell us who people really are. It's going to expose who people really are. Just like when Jesus is doing an x-ray on these churches, things may look great on the outside. This hour of testing is going to expose the hearts of individuals. This test is going to be worldwide. It tells us it's coming upon the whole earth. And then finally, it tells us that this test will be for those who dwell on earth. The book of Revelation uses this phrase repeatedly, those who dwell on the earth. So let's look at these references to those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so you've got one right there in Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 10. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice uh, and ho- saying, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Uh, Chapter 8, verse 13. 8.13 tells um, tells us, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 10, again referencing those who dwell on earth. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them, and they will celebrate and send gifts to one another. This is when the two witnesses are killed. Those who dwell on earth will celebrate the death of the witnesses. Revelation chapter 13, uh, multiple references to those who dwell on earth. Verse 8, all those who dwell on earth will worship him, worship the beast whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world or in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. Uh, Verse 12, he exercises the authority of the first beast in the presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Uh, Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which is given to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Uh, What we're talking about here when it comes to those who dwell on the earth, Revelation continually refers to those who dwell on earth as unbelievers. So the, the, the testing that is to come, this hour of testing, it is in the future. It's a definite time. All right. It's a limited amount of time. The test will expose for people for who they really are. The test is going to be worldwide and it's going to be a test for those who are unbelievers. I want to take you to Daniel chapter nine In Daniel chapter 9, they call Daniel the blueprint of biblical prophecy. Daniel 9, the book of Daniel has the most fulfilled prophecy in all of Scripture up until this point. And in Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24, he's going to tell us about the end, all right? The end of time. He's going to tell us about what is going to happen uh, 
up until the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to make an end to sin and to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know from the issuing of this decree to the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right, so let me just put this into perspective for you. 69 total weeks from the beginning of this decree until Jesus is present on earth. All right? Okay, so then if you look, and he ascends into heaven and he dies. If you look, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, so what do we know? The Messiah, well, he was put on the cross and he died. So 62 weeks until that point uh, and have nothing. The people, the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be desolation determined. And he, okay, this is the one that is to come after Jesus, this prince. This is the Antichrist. When he comes, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. So the 70th week of Daniel will start when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. And when he makes a covenant with Israel, it'll be a, it'll be a covenant of peace. Israel will be allowed to go to the temple and practice their, their sacrificial system. They'll be able to worship without any issue. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offerings, and on the wing of abomination will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. What we're to looking at here with Jesus looking to this church the promise that he has for this church is they will be held from the hour of testing, that they will be held from the time of this tribulation. So the 70th week of Daniel, it's going to be seven total years. And in the three and a half, the first three and a half years, it'll be a covenant of peace where Israel will have the freedom to worship and and make sacrifice and have peace. But in the middle of that, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant. Covenant that is the time that the seventh trumpet will blow, and then ushers in three and a half years of tribulation, where people will be forced to take the mark of the beast. People will be forced to worship the Antichrist. All of this comes as great persecution against any of those who are on the earth at this time. And the promise is that this church will be held out of that testing and event. So this is a great promise for this church. Why? He has the keys. He is the one that opens the door. He tells this church that the door is open for them, that they will have eternity with him. Now look what he says in verse 11 and 12 to wrap this up. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly, hold fast. These are the instructions 
that come as an exhortation and encouragement to this church. There's no warnings for them. This this warning of, behold, I'm coming fast, it's not like the other churches when he says, you better repent because I'm coming quickly. He says, the door is open. Hold fast. I'm coming. See to it that since I'm coming quickly, that no one takes your crown. Don't compromise to the pressure. You have little power, but you have great hope that Jesus is coming. Stand firm. Hold fast in the word of God. Simply put, what's the encouragement? Church, keep doing what you are doing until I come. The Bible tells us uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 25, both references to holding fast. The promise in chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Hold fast in my name. You held fast in my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast. Chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Stand firm. Don't compromise the word of God or his name. Do you hear the encouragement? Because this is the same encouragement for you and I in the midst of all this suffering and persecution. We may not feel the suffering and persecution like other areas of the world might, but I'm telling you, it's quiet. It's subtle. It's not always out in the open. If you want to face great persecution, stand up for the word of God on Twitter. You will automatically see the pressure to compromise. I don't know if I've shared this story before, but we have somebody in our ministry who helped us do some videos in a conference with Kay Arthur. She was emailed about Uh, a couple of years ago now, she was emailed about doing a wedding for a homosexual couple. And in that email response, she was so gracious, and she said, because of my beliefs and because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I cannot participate in celebrating something that goes against God's design for marriage. Within minutes... Within minutes, Twitter picked up on this, and she was receiving hate mail. She was receiving things at her front door, death threats, all of this pressure, this pressure for what? For her to compromise. All of this happened as a point of compromise, and she didn't compromise. She was offered to be able to take pleas in now, you know, paying debts and going to courses to, to compromise and make the people happy. She did not compromise. And she is in the midst of raising dollars to fight legal battles because she is standing firm in her faith and standing firm in the definition that she believes God's word has for marriage. No compromise. Hold fast. Stand firm. Keep doing what you're doing, church. You and I, we are about to face this as well. Each and every day, we watch our culture change and transform. Uh, Just read an article this week where Christianity is in decline in the United States of America. And think about that. If it's in a decline in the United States of America, it so too is a decline declining in Canada. 
We need to hold fast. The pressure is there. The pressure for us to compromise God's word, and we're seeing it happen. Don't be that person. Stand firm, hold true. Why? Jesus has the keys. The door is open. The door is open for you to enter for those who hold fast and stand firm. Let's look at the final part, and then we'll wrap up. The overcomer, the promise to the overcomer. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let the Spirit say to the churches. Well, there's a couple things to look at, and we'll do it quickly. The promise to the overcomer is you will be a pillar. If you think about the book of Revelation, uh, when it comes to the great tribulation, there is a constant watch of those who are to flee. Flee by night. Woe to you, those who are pregnant that have to flee. There's all this running away, a running away from Jerusalem. But here, the promise is that you will be a pillar. The pillar represents a stability. It's a stability, something that holds everything together, and it carries the weight of this temple. They will be a pillar. They will be in a place of stability. They will be a place of in a place of eternal honor. They're going to be in the kingdom of God. And so uh, I'm going to make you a pillar. You don't have to run anymore. Uh, you will be in peace. Uh, when God, when Jesus says, I'll write the name of God on you, uh, writing the name on was a purpose of identity. Think about uh, Toy Story and Buzz Lightyear and, and the cowboy Woody. They had Andy's name written on the foot. I own you. You are mine. And here Jesus is saying the same thing. I'll write the name of my God on you in the name of the city. You are God's and you belong in eternity. Your passport goes from whatever country it says right now, and it becomes the passport of heaven. Your new home, your new place of peace and stability is in the new Jerusalem with God. We will spend eternity with Jesus. You see, this is all about eternal life. This is why Jesus encourages this church to hold fast, to stand firm in the word of God and in his name. Why? Because the reward is with him to be a pillar in the kingdom of God, to have a place of honor and position, unlike those who are told that they are a part of a different synagogue. They are a part of of the synagogue of Satan. And we all know what is coming for those who do not profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the city of brotherly love. These two were so dedicated to each other, brothers dedicated to each other. And we're seeing here this church, who are they dedicated to? They are solely dedicated to Jesus, his name, and his word. They're holding fast, they're standing firm, and therefore the door to the kingdom of God is open for them. The same can be said for you. 
hold fast, stand firm, become an overcomer. Why? The door is open. The door is open for you to enter into eternity with Jesus Christ. So friends, stay, stand firm. Hold fast to the word of God. Don't let the pressure of the world take you over. You can do this. You can overcome. You can persevere because the reward is greater to be with Jesus Christ. Oh, our Father, we do thank you for the promises that come from these scriptures. We thank you for the example of this church. We thank you for the words of your son, Jesus, that he is holy and trustworthy. We thank you that if he promises us eternal life through his shed blood, we have eternal life through his shed blood. Father, help us to stand firm in the midst of our culture. Help us to be people who will not compromise to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are so grateful you joined us in today's episode of Unlocking the Truth, the podcast by Preset Ministries Canada. Visit our website, presetministries.ca, to get more details on the 2023 Holy Land Tour and be sure to register for an upcoming summer workshop, whether in person or online. You will find one that best suits where you are in your precept journey. Know God deeply, live differently.